Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. And I'm joined by the other Just the News podcasts, including John Solomon Reports and the pod's Honest Truth with David Brody. I hope you will consider pre-ordering my new book that's coming out. I know you're going to love it if you're listening to this podcast. It's called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. I'm examining all of the trends that you're seeing today and putting a lot of perspective and inside information behind it. Today in the podcast, we are going to examine how real news journalists should approach news stories, but too often don't. It's a class participation podcast involving current events. I shared this story and it almost crashed the Scoremaster website. The average person has 97 points. That's right, 97 points. They can quickly add to their credit score, but they have no idea how to get there. Scoremaster, credit scientists, discovered an algorithm that super boosts credit scores. Not a few points, but 97 points fast. Imagine 97 points on top of your current credit score. If you're refinancing your home, buying a car, or applying for credit. So you have okay credit and you're buying a car. If you do, go to Scoremaster first and boost your score. The average 61 points in 20 days or less. You could save nine grand on your car loan. And if you raise your credit just the average number before applying for a home loan, you could save almost 100 grand over the life of your loan. Now that's a real savings. Scoremaster puts you in control of your finances. So enroll in minutes and see how many plus points you can add to your credit score at scoremaster.com slash just news. That's scoremaster.com slash just news. Go there now. This is a great deal. I realize that the topic of today's podcast, as many of my writings and podcasts may sound a bit critical of my own profession of journalism, and in some respects it is. I will say, and I often say, there are many great journalists out there, and there is great journalism being conducted. Some of the great journalists and outlets are listed in the final chapter of my new book, Slanted, which I hope you'll pre-order anywhere. But the fact is, we all know journalism isn't being practiced the way it was just a few years ago. As flawed as it was back then, at least there were some agreed-upon ethical standards and practices designed to ensure accuracy which have all pretty much flown out the window now. That's what we're going to talk about today in the context of the latest police shooting of a black suspect, Jacob Blake. I want to point out that at the time I'm recording this podcast, the information about this shooting is still very limited and could be changing by the moment. I don't know when you're listening to the podcast. I only am going by what I know at the time. But the point of the exercise we're conducting today, the critical thinking the lessons about journalism, that remains the same. But the facts that I'm going on are based on, as we know them at this moment, taking into account that what you may know at the time you listen to this may have changed. But these are some important tenets of journalism that should still apply to the news coverage that we do, in my opinion, and too often are not. Number one, stick to the facts, reporting only what happened and what we know and nothing more. This is how a breaking news event, in my view, should be covered and used to be covered by and large by news organizations. We didn't spend a lot of time speculating about the things that we don't know. Now, when a shooting happens, such as the Wisconsin shooting by police officers of Jacob Blake, others can give their opinions, 
about what they think happened, what they think they see on videotape. But you as a reporter should couch them as such, as somebody else's opinion or analysis. And you should try, for variety's sake and for accuracy's sake, to point out the unknowns and get opposing viewpoints to the extent they exist or should exist. Too often that's not done, and you can probably think of many examples where news coverage early on of an event that was developing was presented in a distinctly one-sided way, and the facts turned out to be, as many times they do, something quite different, or there was other context to the story. So think about this when you think about the shooting of Jacob Blake, and maybe you looked at the video. This is where your participation comes in. Think about what you think you saw on the video and what we really know versus supposition and people's assumptions being added to it. What is it that we really know? What is it that a journalist who's doing a hard news report on this topic should be able to report without the conjecture? Number two, something that's important to do, I think, as a journalist who's covering a story and reporting on it as hard news or investigating it and trying to figure out what happened, argue counterpoints with yourself in the absence of all the evidence. This is a mental, sort of a logical exercise that I think will help with accurate reporting, and it protects you, the reporter, as well. And this isn't always easy because it requires you to look at something that you may think is obvious or known and then make a case for why it may not be what it seems. Some of the mental arguments that you make when you do this with yourself could be fairly ridiculous sounding and ultimately discarded. And these are not theories that you as a journalist report, but the point of the exercise is to get yourself thinking about other explanations that there may be for something. And a lot of times when something seems so outrageous or ridiculous, there often is much more to the story we've learned. There's context that we don't yet know. So again, think about what we knew or know early on about the shooting in Wisconsin of the black suspect, Jacob Blake, by the white police officers. And say to yourself, what is the worst case scenario that may have happened, the most egregious thing that may have happened? What is the most understandable thing that might have happened? In the end, one or the other extreme may be exactly what happened and turn out to be the case. Oftentimes, it's a mix of the two, something kind of in between. But this leads us to my third point. As you stick to the facts as a reporter and argue counterpoints with yourself to think about what could have happened, number three, remember history. And you've heard me talk about this before, the sad case of Michael Brown being shot, the black suspect, by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, and the hands up, don't shoot movement. Well, that police officer hasn't sued, but as you may now know, hands up, don't shoot, according to the Obama Justice Department after investigation, never happened. But remember that news coverage? You may remember history again, Rolling Stone's horrible defamation of college fraternity members uh, in a story about alleged rapes. You may have said at the time, wow, it seems so obvious they were guilty because the reporter made it sound that way, but that reporter ultimately lost a libel suit. Remember history, the Catholic high school kid who was said to obviously be threatening the Native American man on videotape? Well, turns out not so. He won a big settlement, including from some media companies. When Ho Lee, the man who was 
falsely pegged in the media as a Chinese spy, only to find out, as I reported, the FBI had lied about his lie detector test and other evidence. The media ended up paying a big settlement to Win Ho Lee and, of course, Richard Jewell. At the time, the media implied surely he bombed the Olympics in Atlanta. Well, turns out that was false and he was cleared. So it's important as a journalist, I think, to constantly remember when these incidents didn't turn out, as many had reported, many prestigious and well-respected news organizations. You should be more careful no matter what everybody else is reporting. Don't jump on the bandwagon. Don't think you have to virtue signal a position in a case that may or may not be what it seems based on a snippet of video or early reporting. And then that leads us to number four, very important today, because I think this happens all the time, don't be bullied by prevailing opinion, which is so often wrong. The New York Times is often wrong. The Washington Post now is often wrong. So you as a journalist can no longer say just because certain reporters or reports claim that it's true or they have a lot of sources that it is true. That's what standards are for. Have your own standards as a journalist. The level of evidence you require before you report something as a fact, attributing your information to its source rather than stating it as if you know it firsthand to be true. So if you were to appropriately apply the critical thinking exercise I've suggested, if you are investigating the matter of this latest shooting and trying to keep your reporting honest and fair early on when the facts aren't known, well, what would that sound like with this latest police shooting? Again, Think to yourself, based on what you know or knew early on, a snippet of video without firsthand context or firsthand information, what would it sound like to make these arguments in your own head about the most egregious thing that may have happened, the most understandable thing that may have happened? Well, the video, by most accounts and reporters said, showed a man being shot in the back while he was trying to get in his car. That's the first mistake I saw. Maybe that's true. Maybe he was shot in the back while trying to get in his car. And many times the obvious does turn out to be true. But surely at the point this was being reported, we didn't have enough evidence or information to develop any conclusions about the intention of the man who was shot, that he was trying to get in his car. We don't really know what he was doing in that instant. Maybe he was. He probably was. But here are some of the things my critical thinking voice is saying as I try to come up with counterpoints to what seems obvious. And not that I wish them to be true. These are just the things that make me more careful when I'm reporting on news stories on the news. First, most egregious scenario. And maybe this is along the lines of what you're thinking. The most egregious possibility is police officers who are racist, perhaps murderous, looking for a chance to get into a fight, to murder a black person, report to the scene of a alleged crime, and find this opportunity to pick a fight with an innocent uh, black suspect so that they can get into a potentially fatal conflict with him. And he's cooperating in ways we don't see because the video doesn't go that long, but he's perhaps cooperating and not at all at risk to anybody else. In fact, the police officers are the risk, and therefore, rather than obey their commands as he's a criminal suspect, he then chooses to walk away and perhaps fearing for his life, thinks it's better for him to try to get into his car and get away. 
and they cold-bloodedly shoot him in the back without provocation when he posed no threat to them because they were trying to kill him. So that is what I would call one extreme. Then let's go to the other extreme possibility, which could be something like he's a very dangerous suspect. The police officers reported to the scene. There was an exchange we don't see on videotape under this hypothesis in which he presents a dire threat to them or to others, perhaps make some sort of threat that he's going to kill somebody or them. Maybe there is a weapon in his possession or they come to believe there's one in the car. And as he doesn't obey them and fails to do what they say as a criminal suspect multiple, multiple times, with them knowing his criminal and violent history, and at first they try to tase him to get him to comply and to stop him because they don't know where he's walking or where he's going, and he's either mentally disturbed or perhaps on drugs because the taser doesn't affect him and he keeps walking to the car where there are innocent children inside and who knows if he's going to, in a domestic dispute of some kind, reach in, and this sort of stuff happens, grab a gun and shoot the children. So they're trying to stop him before he can harm them or turn around and harm the police officers themselves. And that's how the shooting happened. So those are two extremes. And again, one or the other may be entirely true or there may be pieces of that, um, of each story that are true, something in between. The point is, we don't yet know. And despite what we think we know from a snippet of video and from the bit that we can hear of bystanders and perhaps the police calling out at some point, we're not really sure. And we don't have both sides of a story to examine to give us insight. As journalists, again, you at home, if you're watching the video, analysts, pundits, political people, they can voice their own conclusions, responsible or irresponsible as they wish. And reporters can report that and attribute those opinions to the right people. But I think, and I was always trained, that the reporters and journalists should not put in their own voices, conclusions and opinions and assumptions, especially about highly volatile events like this that stand to incite a lot of response and reaction. Reporters shouldn't be doing that as part of their job. They should simply be reporting the facts that are known and reminding people of what is yet to be known. Why is this so important? Why is it wrong for journalists to get on board with a certain side that seems to be right if only later, well, the facts come out and we can correct ourselves, no harm done. Well, I think that undermines our credibility because if we are wrong, as we so often seem to be with our early reporting, and then have to revise it later, it just undermines confidence the next time that we report a story where people will come to believe that we don't know what we're talking about or we're speaking before we have the facts. The facts and our credibility, that's really the one thing you have as a journalist, the accuracy and the track record of your reporting. And when you blow that too many times, you risk getting to a point where I think many of us are today, or at least many viewers are. They don't trust the things that they hear on the news without other confirmation and other facts, because too often the reporting has been irresponsible. We'll continue this conversation, but during this break, think about the conclusions that you drew early on after seeing that video, assuming you saw the video of the Wisconsin shooting, and think about the unknowns and what you might think differently if blanks were filled in, if you played that critical thinking exercise 
and thought about these unknowns and tried to report responsibly as if you were a journalist. We'll be back. We're back. Now I want to describe one instance of so many of how I use the critical thinking exercise that I described to you on a major story that I ended up reporting on, the Fast and Furious gun walking scandal. And the tip that I got early on was that the federal government, federal agents were part of an operation that was secretly allowing weapons, assault rifles and other weapons to be put into the hands of Mexican drug cartels. And I had a pretty good tip early on about this, pretty good evidence to start with. But of course, the voice inside of me said, this is unbelievable, who would do it and why? And that's kind of how I start a lot of stories. And many of them never get reported because I can't receive enough confirmation to credibly be able to report it. But I set out with this mental exercise, something that seems so outrageous, it can't possibly be true. I argue the point that maybe there's a misunderstanding. Maybe it's not true. And even I argue the point when I get a big tip for a story, I first say, assume to yourself you're being set up with false information. And while that may sound extreme, that happens today where people who don't want certain information reported and powerful interests who want to discredit certain reporters or reporting do work to try to get them to mess up or make a major mistake so that they can expose the mistake, discredit the reporter, and the reporter will never be effective on these particular topics that the reporter covers. So as silly as that may sound to you on the outside, on the inside, this was something I routinely did at CBS News as an investigative reporter. When I got information that seemed too outrageous to be true, and often turned out to be true, I started out by assuming I was being set up, and then I disproved that theory if I could. And if I could disprove that theory and show that the thing did happen and get enough evidence, then I would report it. So these are some of the mental exercises, the logical thinking and critical thinking that I did. With Fast and Furious, this notion about the federal government being part of an operation to arm Mexican drug cartels, it just seemed wild and crazy. And although I was getting good evidence, as I said, I thought perhaps somebody's feeding me this information so that I can report it if I'm not careful, and then it can be discredited. So started with that, developed a lot of sources, good sources on the inside over a period of time. And I wrote about how I did some of that in my first book, Stonewalled. But even when I had insiders providing me a lot of detail that I believed and some of which I could confirm directly, before I reported it, I continued to play that critical thinking exercise. What if they don't have the whole picture? What if there's another side to what they describe as a totally illegitimate government act that allows weapons to fall in the hands of murderous Mexican drug cartels? And I started thinking about perhaps this is an intentional secret operation to arm one cartel against another cartel, as we have done, by the way, in the past. We have supported one cartel in a foreign country against another cartel that we have deemed to be worse. What if it's something like that, which could be considered by some to be a legitimate operation 
secretly done, meant for the good of the United States, but that somehow results in some harm accidentally. So these are the types of things that I think. And then I set out bit by bit to see if that could possibly be true. I poke around with sources. I try to find other sources. I try to find sources that may contradict the sources that I have come to believe that are on the same page. And I also ask the sources, what are their axes to grind? Because when you have information coming from insiders, often they have their own agenda. Sometimes it's a good and honest agenda. They have seen something wrong and they've tried to write it on the inside. And when they couldn't, they've decided to talk to you as a reporter, maybe as a last resort. Sometimes there are other ulterior motives, as we know. People may have political motives. They may have financial motives. They may have personal hostility towards somebody. So you have to go through all of those thoughts and all of that critical thinking before you take somebody's word for something. And I will tell you, when it comes to informants and using inside information, it doesn't mean that someone who's disgruntled is not telling the truth. Many times, disgruntled employees are the very ones who will tell the truth about a wrong that's being committed. But you have to know that as a reporter, you have to disclose that tie if you're using that information. Even if you're using a source anonymously, as a reporter, you need to characterize that this person may have an axe to grind in a certain area or maybe failed to get a promotion that the person wanted or whatever the context is. So again, the public can help use that information to weigh what the person is saying or what the information you're presenting has in terms of credibility. So let's apply some of these critical thinking skills that journalists should be using to another recent event that you've probably seen video of, the Kyle Rittenhouse shootings, the white 17-year-old from Illinois who was captured on video, apparently shooting three people, two of them died. If you haven't seen the video and want to look, that's easy enough to find online. Just search Kyle Rittenhouse and you'll, you'll be able to see the video. It's disturbing, so keep that in mind if you haven't seen it already. But again, class participation. What do we know as you look at that video about what happened. It's a snippet in time, as so many videos are, without the context of what happened immediately before. And we are guessing to a large degree about these events, but there are two distinct hypotheses that have been put forth in the news and on social media based on the same video. People with very different interpretations, which kind of proves the whole point of this discussion. On the one hand, if you wanna believe one extreme, The 17-year-old is a white supremacist who went to this event, these protests, after the fatal shooting of Jacob Blake, and he went there to pick a fight as a racist or white supremacist, to pick a fight with African Americans or other whites who support them so that he could shoot and kill some people, and found a way to do it, murdered them in cold blood, found a clever way to escape the scene of the crime by raising his hands and walking toward the police when actually he wanted to get away and did get away before he was later apprehended. That's one extreme. Another extreme that's being promulgated, another viewpoint is that he, the 17-year-old, was not looking for any trouble, was simply helping protect businesses or business owners, was attacked by a mob of thugs, 
and in self-defense, which they say is clearly shown on the videotape, ended up defending himself and shooting people who would have murdered him, after which he immediately hands up, tried to surrender to the police who reported to the scene, but they didn't recognize that that's who he was or what he was doing, and they drove past him. Well, as a journalist, you can think about these two extreme interpretations of the video, and you could, I suppose, report either of them attributed to the advocates who have that interpretation, pointing out that there's another view in each case. But what I think you shouldn't do as a journalist is get on board with either of them and say that's what happened. And I heard some reports early on claim that Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old, had murdered people. Well, murder is something that's proven in a court of law. We may know that people died and that the gunshot came from that weapon But as to what kind of deaths those were, self-defense, first-degree murder, some lesser form of homicide, that's not up to journalists to say on the front end, we can't. It's simply not possible to factually make that determination. But people are doing it. But people are doing it. And there's one final point that I want to address that you as a journalist, if you were a journalist, I think should be doing, and too many times we don't do it as journalists. And it's something that could and should be taught in journalism school because it's a pretty tough thing to do naturally. And I actually spent a lot of years critically thinking about these sorts of things, as I'm sure I made mistakes in my assumptions and reporting, particularly as a young journalist, before I examine these syndromes that I'm talking about. But particularly... When you personally feel a certain way, you have to examine critically how you're reporting an event, and you have to consider the opposite viewpoint. So let's say, as a journalist, you look at that video and you think it's egregious, and you support, as many of us do, the notion that African Americans, like everybody else, should be treated fairly, should not be shot unjustly by the police. There are issues on some police forces and with some police officers. You want things to be right. You want things to be good. So maybe that gives you a propensity when you see a piece of video without proper context or without full context, maybe that makes you want to report a certain way beyond the facts that you know. That's when you have to be, I think, especially careful to consider the counterpoints, as distasteful as the counterpoints may be to you personally. You know, we did an exercise like this in, I think it was a speech or debate class in college. And really, it's one of the most valuable things I think I learned, although I didn't apply it to journalism early on. We were given the assignment of picking a controversial topic that we felt strongly about. And we were to prepare a persuasive speech to convince the audience of our fellow students that they should agree with us and our opinion. And that was a lot of fun because people felt strongly about whatever they were writing about. Let's say the death penalty was one example. And maybe you are against the death penalty as a young journalist and you write your persuasive speech. Then this professor so wisely mixed it up and said, now argue against that position and your grade will be based on how effectively you argue against the position in which you believe kind of blew my mind. I mean, it's a great critical thinking exercise. Take something 
that you believe in and argue against it so persuasively that you'll get a good grade. I think we should be taught to do that more often in journalism because our opinions too often encroach upon our reporting today. But if in journalism school, we learn to ferret out our own opinions and then resist them or report contrary to them or consider viewpoints that may be personally distasteful to us and we get used to that feeling, maybe we'll be more able to do that in real life. And you know the beauty of it? From what I've found, when you really listen to the other side or another viewpoint and don't just set out to prove what you think happened in a certain incident or case, you may find there's an entirely different and better story there. And on many occasions in the past 10 years or so of my reporting, when I find myself listening to the other side, when I think I know the whole story, but I set out to really, instead of proving it, listening to the people on the ground who are telling me opposing viewpoints or more context, I end up with a better story. It may not be the one that I thought, and it may not even agree with the opinion I had, but it's the truth, and it's accurate, and it's more interesting, and it's off-narrative. And that's, I suppose, in some respects, how I've come to be an investigative reporter who tries to expose information that powerful interests don't want exposed. This is something we can all do. We can do it as reporters, but even you, as somebody who consumes the news, you can go through these same critical thinking exercises as you watch the news. Maybe the journalists you watch are not performing these logical thinking tasks, but you can do it. And maybe in some respects, that is the best defense today as a news consumer when you're watching the news and don't know what to believe. Deploy that critical thinking exercise that maybe the journalists you're watching are not deploying, and you may end up with a better picture and a more whole picture of the truth as it's known at the time. you enjoyed today's podcast and that you will subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast wherever you like to listen and also subscribe to my other podcast Full Measure After Hours which is connected to my Sunday TV program Full Measure and please consider pre-ordering my book Slanted How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. I believe this is the first book with interviews from numerous top executives and reporters current and former representing most every major network in both cable and broadcast. Most of them that talk to me in the book are unnamed so they could speak candidly, but some did agree to allow their names to be used. And all of them who described their personal politics said they were liberal or progressive, but nearly all of them expressed great worry about what the news has become. I think you will find Slanted a very informative book. Do your own research, make up your own mind, Think for yourself. This is the Black Friday special for the holiday season. Just for my listeners, the Clean Phone, the top brand in UV sanitizing, is now offering their top rated, top selling, best reviewed wand product at 50% off and free 
two-day shipping. That's a great deal. The Clean Phone Wand is a handheld UV sanitizer that helps you eliminate 99.9% of bacteria and kill viruses in seconds on virtually any surface. It uses the same proven sanitizing technology employed by hospitals. Who wouldn't want that in your home? You can use it on packages, groceries, keyboards, tablets, money. Take it with you everywhere at 50% off and free two-day shipping for a limited time. It's the perfect gift for anyone who needs it. It's super portable and with days of battery life, you can take it anywhere and make sure your environment is clean and safe. COVID cases are on the rise, so get the clean phone wand at 50% off right now, and they'll take 60% off a second wand. That's a great holiday gift for your family and your friends. So go to justthenewshop.com, that's justthenewshop.com, and get your clean phone wand right now. This is an early Black Friday special, so don't miss out. Go to justthenewshop.com right now.